I think people, especially people who didn't grow up in the city, but who come and, uh, to live there, they're attracted to it because it's this opportunity to suddenly not have to be self-conscious about being Jewish because it, it's just there. It's in the atmosphere. Other people know Yiddish expressions. People eat Jewish foods. It pervades the city. And therefore, as an individual, you can be very Jewish if you want, but you don't have to be. New York City, the only town I know of where you can get a bagel after 5 p.m. Hi, everyone. I'm Clarissa Marks, and you are listening to On Wandering, a mostly monthly podcast about Jews, Jewish identity, and what shapes it. Many of us are still waiting out the pandemic lockdown and maybe starting to think about when it might be safe to travel. So today, we're talking about a city that a lot of listeners have mentioned that they've been to or want to visit. I live in Seattle, but most of my family is from New York. As a kid, going to New York meant a visit to grandma's house. But as an adult, I've realized the city holds a special place for American Jews and Jewish culture. There's a lot that I associate with the city as being Jewish, from food to art music, and general urban environment. So why New York? Is it really such a Jewish city, and how did it become that way? To answer that, I sought out today's guest, Dr. Deborah Dashmore. Deborah is a professor of Jewish history, and she serves as the editor-in-chief for the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. In 2017, she co-authored the book Jewish New York, the remarkable story of a city and a people. In this conversation, we talked about how Jews transformed the city of New York and how the city transformed them. Deborah was also born and raised in New York, and you can really hear how much love she has for the city during this interview. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Deborah Dashmore. Thank you so much for joining the show, Deborah. It's so good to see you. It's wonderful to be here, especially to talk about New York. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I invited you on the show because you authored a book called Jewish New York, The Remarkable Story of a City and a People. More Jews lived in New York City than in any other countries in Europe. It's the largest Jewish city in history. Why New York? How did New York become this big Jewish hub as opposed to, say, Boston or Chicago? So, first of all, New York became a big hub basically in the, starting in the 19th century. In the colonial period, yeah, Jews were living there, but it wasn't a big hub. And it had to do with the transformation of the city itself by immigrants, but also because of the Erie Canal that connected it to the Midwest and the various improvements that New York invested in. So it was a port city, you know, like Boston, Philadelphia, but it surpasses them because it has these incredible connections to the rest of, of the country. And it becomes a center of industry, industry that was diverse. So you had the growth of the garment industry, which was key for Jews, but also the printing industry, food industries. I mean, a huge amount of the bread that Americans consumed was made in New York. There was beer that was made in New York too, not as much as you know, in Milwaukee, but still, I mean, just these diverse, diverse industries. And that's what brings Jews to New York City, are the economic growth of the city and the various opportunities that it allows. So it does, it becomes the largest Jewish city in history. At its peak, two million Jews lived in New York, which is more than the Jews who lived in England or France or Germany or, you know, Italy or, I mean, I could go on. Yeah. Mm hmm So today, my impression is that many Jews, even outside of New York, look at New York very fondly. And I've spoken to a lot of folks who are Jewish who have either specifically 
moved to New York for a period of time in their lives. They were Mm -hmm. drawn to living there or they've made sure to spend some time there. Why do we find New York so alluring as Jews? What's drawing us there? So look, one of the things that's important about New York City is that very early on, it ceased to have a majority population. That meant that as Jews, you had a measure of freedom. There wasn't this one dominant group that you had to conform to. You were free to be Jewish in lots of different ways. And that is part of the attraction. There's no one way to be Jewish because you don't feel like a minority because there is no majority. Everyone's a minority. And that just changes the the dynamic uh, of it. And I think people, especially people who didn't grow up in the city, but who come and, uh, to live there, they're attracted to it because it's this opportunity to suddenly not have to be self-conscious about being Jewish because it, it's just there. It's in the atmosphere. Other people know Yiddish expressions. You know, there's just... People eat Jewish foods. Um, It pervades the city. And therefore, as an individual, you can do any number of things. You can be very Jewish if you want, but you don't have to be. And, of course, it is the center of culture in the United States, right, in terms of uh, theater, in terms of publishing, all of these important art, et cetera, cultural dimensions. But the Jewish piece is really important, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So you brought up something that kind of struck me when reading this book that many New York Jews don't have the same experience of being a minority that Jews in other cities do, either because they live in neighborhoods that are Jewish or work in businesses with other Jews. And we talked a little bit about how this draws in Jews from outside of New York who are kind of looking for a little bit of relief from carrying that minority status. But how do you think that that growing up in that environment impacts the Jews who live in New York? So New York is a city of neighborhoods and Jews started out on the Lower East Side. Uh, That was the immigrant neighborhood. You know, hundreds of thousands of Jews lived there. But It then spread uh, to Brooklyn. There were immigrant neighborhoods in Brooklyn and Williamsburg and Brownsville. It spread up to the Bronx. Jews lived in Harlem for a while. And then they built what were essentially second-generation neighborhoods, that is to say, for the children of immigrants who moved there and their kids also grew up. And in these neighborhoods. And in the neighborhoods, you had you know, anywhere from 30 to 60% of the neighborhood was Jewish. But for a kid growing up there, it felt much more Jewish because usually the other people living in the neighborhood were very often Catholic. And many Catholic kids went to Catholic schools, especially in the interwar years, but also in the years after World War II. And that meant that the public schools, which is what most Jews went to, were even more Jewish than the neighborhood itself, which enhanced that feeling of living in a Jewish world. I mean, I can't tell you the number of memoirs where you read where they all say, I thought everybody was Jewish, right? And it isn't until they get to be teenagers that they realize, gee, everybody isn't Jewish, right? But those formative years, when all your friends are, and where everybody seems to be in the neighborhood, those are, are really important. And it leads to a kind of confidence that New York Jews have. Jews who grew up outside of New York don't always appreciate that. Um, they find it too aggressive at times. But, you know, it's like because being Jewish is just normal and and you don't have to worry about what other people think because they're not around you when you grow up there. And and that attitude is is very powerful. I would add, I don't know if you're going to ask me about this, but I would add, Clarissa, that there, in the middle of the 20th century, certainly, New York and Jewish became combined. 
you wanted to say someone was Jewish, you could say, oh, he's a New Yorker, right? or she's a New Yorker. It was The Jewish piece of New York was so much identified with the city that people who wanted to attack New York and really wanted to attack Jews would attack New York. Yeah. Yeah, in what context? Well, political context, certainly. Uh, New York had a reputation for radicalism. And if you were not, you know, politically liberal or on the, on the left and you didn't like people who were, you would say, well, they were New Yorkers, right? We don't want New Yorkers in our school. We don't want New Yorkers in our neighborhood, etc. These are for places outside of the, of the city. Yeah. Oh, wow. Or even we don't want New York Yorkers in our sorority or fraternity, even when they're a Jewish sorority or fraternity. Yeah. It was that internal kind of Jewish uh, feeling uh, about New York. Yeah. Yeah. That was something that was interesting that I read in the book that you talk a little bit about the educational paths for Jewish New Yorkers. And something that I don't think I was even aware of was just how the access to education, especially higher education, was very good for folks in New York. New York. I think subsidized some of the college education. It was free. I can't until the 1970s. It was it's free. Unbelievable. You, yes. That's correct. I mean, that's what we're talking about now a little bit for community colleges. Mm-hmm. But you went to free elementary, free junior high, as they called it, free high school, and then if you were, you know, smart enough, um, you can go to free college too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was free, and that made an enormous uh, impact. Yeah. Yeah. The book spans the history of Jews in New York from 1654 all the way to 2015. What are some of the major mile markers or periods, different periods of Jewish New York within that long history? So one of the things I did in the book, which I think is important, is to recognize that just because you come to an end date doesn't mean that things don't continue. So, you know, the first part looks at 1654 all the way to 1865, right? I mean, it's, it's the longest time period. It's the colonial era. It's the era of the early republic. It's when it's a small, for the most part, uh, population. But then the next part, which looks at immigration, begins you know, really before 1865, and it goes all the way to 1925. And so there's a kind of overlap there. I think what characterizes the early period is the smallness and intimate quality that you had in New York. For a while, you had only one synagogue for for really a couple hundred years. You had only one synagogue. And it was a Sephardic community, correct? It was Sephardic, that's right. And then you have your first breakaway synagogue. And and that becomes really important because that's what starts to characterize American Jews. One city, two synagogues. (laughs) And pretty soon, you know, you got three synagogues and four and yes. And the breakaway ones are Ashkenazi, not, not Sephardic. So you have just one Sephardic synagogue. And that period, I think, ends in many ways with the Civil War and the fact that New York Jews, for the most part, they supported the Union, but they didn't vote for Lincoln, put it that way. They were, were not gung-ho in favor of Abraham Lincoln, emancipation of the slaves, you know, all of the things that we tend to identify with New York Jews. And what happens after 1865 and and Lincoln's death is that you start to get many new immigrants coming. And they don't know about the Civil War, right? They arrive in, you know, 1880 or 1890. And, you know, Lincoln's a big hero, right? And of course they're against slavery. And so so the whole culture of New York Jews changes from that earlier period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that culture that changes in the earlier period is 
inflected by class. You have Jews who have really prospered, and you have these immigrants who are definitely poor and working class. It's also inflected by where they come from. Central European Jews speaking German or Germanized Yiddish, Eastern European Jews speaking uh, Yiddish, and of course, a small numbers of Jews then from the Ottoman Empire as well, speaking Ladino and stuff. And that's a very different period. Then you come to what's my favorite period, <laughs> which is to say the period of the second generation or, or you know, what I call making New York Jews. The, this transformative period uh, when the children of immigrants really become New York Jews. And that's the period, of course, when the city has the largest number of Jews. It's when you get all of this enormous cultural creativity and stuff. And that runs really up, up until around 1970 or so, at which point the city goes into economic crisis, right? I mean, the famous... Uh, Daily News headline of Gerald Ford, you know, Ford to right, city, <laughs> drop dead, right, where the government won't bail out New York. It recovers from it, but it's a very changed city. Lots and lots of Jews leave at that point. Many of the other white residents of the city also leave. And, you know, the, the Bronx is burning, <laughs> as, as they say. So... By the time you get up to the, the latter decades, what you, what you see are sort of return of some Jews. These are like maybe your friends who've come for a while, right? Um, and they discover a Williamsburg, which is not the Williamsburg of, you know, 50 years ago by any means, right? It's a hip place. Nobody has quite yet discovered the Bronx in the same way, but who knows? I hear it's on its way. <laughs> I hear there's oh, okay, some movement okay. there. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not it's it's very very modestly priced. <laughs> it's, it's, if you if you want to know. So you get you get people coming back, right? They come back to the Lower East Side and man the Lower East Side is not like anything the way it was and it's a very different kind of of city. Jews are now back up around a million out of over 8 million. So, mm. you know, they're a su substantial percentage. But of these, there's also an important segment of them who are uh, Orthodox Jews uh, who came after World War II and then, you know, uh, had large families and stuff. Are there characteristics or policies that were shaped by the very first Jews in New York? that have stuck around and impact all of the later communities? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I begin the book with a kind of narrative about the first Jews who arrived, the 23, on the this ship from Recife, Brazil. They're fleeing the defeat of uh, the Dutch by the Portuguese. And it's a, it's a wonderful starting myth because it's their families, there are children and there are women and there are men. And they come and they celebrate Rosh Hashanah, you know, the new year there, right? And they face Peter Stuyvesant who wants to kick him out, right? So they encounter his prejudice, um, they overcome that. But in truth, you know, we now know they all ended up leaving eventually. Right? It wasn't a really good place to live, but it's a good place to begin the story because it has those elements of what Jews like to tell about themselves and, and why, they, why they came, right? That it was a family migration. And in fact, the other subsequent migrations were very much family migrations, right? Women constituted 40% or more of the immigrants coming. So, you know, you can tell that that's, that's an important piece of it. You know, some of what was created uh, in by early uh, Jews in New York came in response to the establishment of the United States. There, New York is the first state to actually enfranchise its Jews, as, you know, it happens in, in 1777. And the adoption by 
Sherid Israel, which is the, the Sephardic congregation that's still around, the adoption of, of Sherid Israel of sort of a, a, a constitution for, to govern itself, some democratic means of electing officers. I mean, these are ideas that are still present. Most congregations uh, do have sort of constitutions, right? They, they are legally charted by the state. They, you know, they have different ways of electing the people to the boards. I mean, so that kind of embrace of democracy in Jewish life, I think, was, was very important. Mm. And the mirroring, it sounds like, of a Jewish community to the larger secular government, which I would assume is more rare coming from countries that have a Catholic or Muslim state that has less. Well, actually, I think it it, it does. I mean, you know, you've got a chief rabbi in, in Britain. And why do you have a chief rabbi? Well, you know, because you've got an established church in Britain. And, you know, so I think the mirroring happens elsewhere mm. also. But it doesn't produce the same thing because elsewheres are are very different, mm. you know, especially when you have established churches. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you say in a previous interview that New York Jews live their Jewishness outdoors rather than indoors. And that is that being Jewish doesn't necessarily require you that you go to a synagogue and your identity isn't hidden. It's part of the rest of your life. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works on a day-to-day basis? Okay. Okay. So the sort of classic image of the modern Jew was to be a man or a woman, we might say, a person in the street, right? And a Jew at home privately. But for New Yorkers, they sort of reverse that. They are very out as Jews. Now, how does it work? All right. So let's say you have Rosh Hashanah and you don't have tickets to the synagogue, right? Lots of people didn't have tickets to a synagogue, even when they had what they called mushroom synagogues, which were these, you know, movie theater that would open up for Rosh Hashanah and you'd have your services in the movie theater with a cantor who was going to make some money, right, by selling tickets. And they were called mushroom synagogues? They were called mushrooms because they popped up like mushrooms. I love that. You know, you have mushrooms pop up. Okay, so they, all right. So let's say you're up on the Grand Concourse and there are quite a few synagogues there, but you don't belong. But it's Yontif. So you get dressed up, you go out on the street, and everybody is dressed up and out on the street. Some of the people are actually walking to synagogue, but a lot of the people aren't necessarily walking to synagogue. You know, they're greeting their neighbors. They're, you know, they're enjoying the, the holy day. Many of them might congregate outside a synagogue. One of the, the accounts that our people tell of um, especially Rosh Hashanah services is that it often coincided with um, one of the games of the um, World Series. And so, you know, when people wanted to know what it was, this was before transistor radios especially, they would go, you know, they'd leave services to find out, you know, and then they'd hang out outside. So that's sort of one way of observing a holiday without actually going into the synagogue. If you close your store down, you you don't go to work. In 1960, the public schools declared no classes on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That was a very big change. So, you know, it was a way of suggesting that this is part of the public culture. I must admit, I, I remember when I raised two, two sons and part of the time we didn't live in New York and we lived where they did not observe, the public schools did not observe the Jewish holidays. And then you feel, you know, very different. I, the kids, the boys didn't go to public school on those holidays. They were out, but they were a, a very clear minority. So think of how different it is when the schools are closed. You don't have to make that decision. Are you going to go to services? Or in any case, you're not going to school. It's not a regular day. 
Yeah. And it's almost like the burden isn't on you to out yourself and ask for permission to leave for the day. Right. It's just That's correct. Yeah. It gives you a little more decision power over how you spend the day. Yeah. It gives you agency, we would say. Yeah. Yeah. So while New York supported a strong secular Jewish identity, it's also a place that led to a lot mm -hmm. of creativity and experimentation in Judaism as a religion and helped yes. shape some of the major modern denominations. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, sure. Um, so it starts really in the 19th century with a form of religion called ethical culture, which is not necessarily associated particularly with Jews, but it was created by the son of a rabbi and it was supposed to be an alternative to reform Judaism. Right? And uh, it, it's, it's inscribed physically in the city. Um, you have this very fancy temple, Emmanuel, which is the, you know, big sort of mother synagogue, as it were, of reform Judaism. And across Central Park, uh, it's on Fifth Avenue, across Central Park, is ethical culture building, you know, the sort of father-son um, uh, situation there. But then in the 20th century, you have, I think, some very important innovations. You get the creation of Reconstructionist Judaism. Mordecai Kaplan, the rabbi, was a, a very original thinker. He tries to work with a group of Orthodox Jews. He sets up something called the Jewish Center, which is a multi-story building on 86th Street that had a sewing pool on, the, I think, the sixth or seventh floor, right? I mean, it's, and, of course, it had a, a, a sanctuary and it had classrooms, but it was the idea to combine all of this together with the synagogue. And then he quarreled with the, uh, uh, the Balabatim. Um, he gave a sermon, among other things, that, that criticized not recognizing unions and you know, not paying your workers well. So he, he moved down the block with a group of people. They left and they started the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, which still exists and is actually going to have a, an anniversary next year of 100 years. So, wow. All right. So that was a very interesting and innovative place. And what did, they did things, they changed the liturgy, right? They got rid of the chosen people concept. They put some beautiful paintings of uh, in the synagogue itself of um, Palestine as, you know, land of Israel and workers and everything. They included women, and that was crucial. That's where the first bat mitzvah in America happened. Kaplan had four daughters, so the oldest one, you know, he was influenced, I think, by uh, women getting the right to vote, 1920 and 1922. She has her bat mitzvah, uh, Judith uh, Kaplan. And, uh, you know, it was a very bold thing to do. It, it, and, it, of course, it takes quite a while for it to, to catch on. But So that was one movement that starts. And then, of course, when you get into more recent history, um, or at least post-World War II, the Jewish feminist movement really starts in New York with a conference that's held in the McAlpin Hotel down on 34th Street. It's, you know, these are women who are feminists, but who are also committed to Judaism, and they want Judaism to change. They issue, you know, they, they, they want women to be leaders in Judaism. They want them to be recognized for an aliyah, for, I mean, all... A lot of the changes, many of which, in fact, have have happened, which is sort of stunning when you think about it. Yeah. One of the other things I noticed, though, is in addition to creating these new religious movements, religious movements or Jewish institutions, is that Judaism as a religion was also being shaped to fit Jews' identities as Americans. So some of the examples were that there were more there was more emphasis on life cycle events like bar mitzvahs or weddings and there were on regular sabbath attendance or mm -hmm. even the development yeah. of like the kosher style foods or the kosher food industry so that 
you could be someone who bought kosher food based on your preference, but you didn't have to necessarily belong to a synagogue and know who was in charge of that procedure. Yeah. I think that that's something that, or my understanding is that that's something that's had to happen for all American Jews. But I'm wondering to what extent you feel like Jews around the country were taking their cues from Jews in New York about how do you have a more American style of Jewish observance? That's a really good question. I think, you know, one of the things that that I discovered in, in this project and working on this book is how old many of these questions are. So the questions about Sabbath observance, that's an issue from the 19th century, right? It's not new. And Jews stopped observing the Sabbath. There were these big debates about how Christians should observe the Sabbath also. And, you know, so... It's something that that Jews pick up from in the environment, but they're engaged in reshaping, yes, as you said, American Judaism to fit the American milieu. And that meant changing the structures of synagogues, but also changing the the rhythm of the Jewish calendar and which days become important in terms of holy days, what Events like bar mitzvah becomes important. The practices of death change. Uh, you get you get funeral directors. Well, you never had funeral directors in in Europe. This is a, an innovation, and it's an innovation specifically in New York because of the distance you had to take the body to the cemeteries. Right. Uh, so. Uh, there, there are a number of things that happen in the city that then spread elsewhere, and certainly the practices around death is are, are one of them. Uh, the bat mitzvah, as I mentioned again, uh, so these these types of Americanization and innovation do in fact occur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So moving on to a little bit away from the religious world of Jews in New York. A lot of folks associate New York with its status as the arts and culture capital in the U.S. Yes, that's correct. And And, rightly so. Yeah, yeah, and rightly so. And you write that in New York, there were fluid boundaries between what was considered Jewish arts and culture and general arts and culture. So I'm wondering if you can tell me more about that. And, you know, to what extent were Jews part of shaping New York as the capital of arts and culture? So I I think that it often depends upon what area you're looking at. If you look at, let's say, in the art world, there was a fairly firm art establishment that was not particularly welcoming to Jews. And so Jews ended up going into other types of area that wasn't as much considered art, right? So they went into photography, for example and become very influential in photography because there are no barriers that are set up. By contrast, if you look at music, Jews are involved in music very early in the 19th century in terms of helping to create symphony orchestras. Okay, not opera so much, <laughs> but they're, they're in this, this musical world And that means that they also can be involved in other commercial forms of music, what's Tin Pan Alley, uh, as it was called, and the the blending. I I talk a little bit about George Gershwin and his um, Rhapsody in Blue, which was, you know, originally going to be American Rhapsody. And the, the way in which the the lines between what is considered high culture and popular culture tend to get blurred along with what's considered American and what's considered Jewish. So uh, things travel. Songs that are written for the Yiddish theater, you know, get re new lyrics in English and they move up to Harlem and they become, you know, uh, jazz expressions. And then they may move into popular culture as well, like Bamia Bistashane, right? So uh, there's, there's this possibility for circulation there. So with music, less so with art. 
And then certainly in publishing, right? Jews are extraordinarily innovative in publishing, in part because there's an establishment and they need to go figure out how to go around it. So they come up, you know, paperback books, book clubs, <laughs> right, book of the month club. You know, I mean, these are all ideas where, where you sell books. You're going to sell them in, in train stations and not just in bookstores. You know, ways of getting into an industry that has certain uh, barriers. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was something that I, I thought came up a couple times in the book, both in the arts and culture world, but also the other industries in New York, this idea of, I think you called it the, or it was written in the book as the great paradox. The idea that there were, there was a lot of networking that Jews were able to do because of the large population, but there were also restrictions. So there, innovation had to happen and was supported by the Jewish network that was there yeah, so partly what what you get when you have a very big industry, let's say like the construction industry, is you get, it's ethnically divided, right? So you have Italians in construction, you have Germans in construction, you have Irish in construction, and you have Jews in construction. And there's enough work for everybody. But it's an ethnically segmented uh, industry that way. Other times, you know, the networks allow Jews to go in and experiment, right, <laughs> with new new forms of of culture and you know where you have these sort of crossovers so you get an enormous yiddish theater that flourishes and you know some of the people then go off to broadway right and make that make that transition others go into the early um movies right which is a, another another possibility and that you know jews get started in very early on because it's very popular among immigrants, right? There's no, uh, there's no speaking, right? They're mm. all silent. It's great. <laughs> and immigrants really, you know, enjoy, enjoy movies. Yeah. yeah. Right. I want to make sure I don't, I don't repeat the trope of saying, well, Jews were a special group of people. They contributed so much to arts and culture. Mm. I'm wondering kind of, To what extent do you feel that Jews were a very impactful group on the arts and culture and intellectualism that comes out of New York or that came out of New York? And to what extent is that something that we as Jews like to focus on to kind of make ourselves feel proud? Are we picking picking the the anecdotes that support our theory that Jews were impactful in these areas? Yes. To the last question, Jews have a tendency to highlight Jews who were great. I mean, even things that Jews did that weren't so great, like Murder Incorporated, right, which was a gang in Brooklyn of gangsters, you know, becomes romanticized. Uh, There was nothing romantic about it, you know, murdering people. But there is this tendency uh, to do that. You know, because Jews are part of New York, And because New York is so important in the life of the United States, what Jews do in the city has a big impact. It's also true of what African-Americans do, right? What they do in Harlem, the Harlem Renaissance, has an enormous impact. That's not to say that Chicago and, uh, you know, other places and stuff don't also matter, but if you're in a place that is the the center of culture that has the the media reach which new york had i think it still does you know for for uh, certainly for all of the 20th century and for a chunk of the 19th what you do is going to resonate across a larger area than just your own smaller spaces and i think that Jews did this along with a lot of other people in New York, right? They did it along with Italians. They did it along with the Irish. There was a a symbiosis that existed among these different groups. Remember, all of these groups are minorities. There's no majority. And that's really crucial. So you're negotiating as one minority with another minority about things. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's a really good point. I'd like to just ask you a few questions about the political realm for Jews in New York. So New York has been the hub of many Jewish social justice and labor movements. How did New York as a city shape these movements and how have the Jewish movements in turn shaped the city? Okay. So uh, the character of the garment industry with lots and lots and lots of small shops, right? The complete opposite of the automobile industry where you have these enormous factories, right? Instead, you get these, these little shops was crucial to New York, right? Because you just didn't have space for big shops in New York. And that meant that organizing, if you're going to unionize these shops, you had to find ways of reaching lots of of people in, in very small, discrete units, and that you needed to use other forms of connection with them whether it was newspapers, socialist press, or outdoor meetings, or other ways of, of reaching your, um, your people. That meant that when you got a union movement in New York, uh, which you did get in the early 20th century that was very strong, in the garment trades especially, but it also it spread into other trades as well, you had many people who were committed not just to the union, but to a political point of view, which is to say socialism, that they felt socialism was going to be the way to achieve many of their goals, such as a goal of giving women the right to vote, which was, a you know, voted in favor in 1917, New York State voted in favor of that, and Jews definitely supported it. So Jews voted socialist in those years. They elected uh, socialists to the state legislature, to the what was called the city council. I mean, it was now we call it the city council. It was the board of aldermen then, to Congress, uh, Meyer London. And that ended up having an influence on the other parties, uh, most especially on the Democratic Party in New York City, because Tammany Hall, which dominated the Democratic Party, wanted wanted to win. And if you want to win and you've got these people, you know, espousing socialist ideas, so you pick up some of them, right? You pick up the idea of unemployment insurance. It's a good idea. You pick up the idea of social security. It's a right. And you run with it and you make them become mainstream. And especially in the um, years of the Great Depression with Franklin D. Roosevelt as president, a lot of these ideas moved into the national from from the city to the state and then from the state to the to the national those were you know they were important parts of uh, new york culture it was very much in the middle decades of the century a um, a working men's town new yorkers because they were unionized earned more than most other workers in other parts of the country. And that was that was very important. Mm-hmm. It's not true anymore, but yeah. Yeah, and there are a number of progressive political activists and actors who have who come to mind when you think of New York Jews. Specifically, I think you've mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Bernie Sanders as examples of two Jews in the political sphere who went to the same Brooklyn high school, I believe, at different times, but the same high school. What do you think that that says about the New York Jewish population and its political influence? So, yes, I did mention both Sanders and and Ruth Bader Ginsburg to you, because I think that as Brooklyn Jews, they reflect a, um, a, a way of thinking about politics and the possibilities of using politics to make social change. They adopt a different focus in terms of their politics. I mean, Ginsburg is very clearly focused on equal rights, on enabling women, and dismantling the, the patriarchal elements of our political system. Sanders has held on to more of the economic vision of of socialism, uh, the 
desire to reduce income inequality, to provide Americans with health care, something which is really important, in, uh, as we now recognize with, the, with this pandemic. And to, to take these, these socialist understandings of the responsibility of government for the people into the early 20th century. But both of them were nourished by a, a Brooklyn Jewish milieu that just assumed that one was progressive, right? That these were good values, that government could do things for people and should do things to help people. And I think that was, you know, very important. So now you're working on a history of Jewish photographers in New York City in the later 20th century. Can you tell me a little bit about that project? Sure. So that project, which is in process, is called Walkers in the City, Jewish Street Photographers of New York, 1936 to 1966, so those middle decades. And it's about these young working class Jews, women and men both, who learn how to use a camera because it's not too hard. It's a machine, right? You can, we all know we take pictures, but who come to take pictures of the city that see it as composed of its people. So when you think of New York, many people think of big buildings, right? You know, the skyline and that kind of stuff, right? And the rivers. And they said, no, no, no. You know, New York is its people. And the photographs that they took were meant to help New Yorkers see themselves, right? Because they wanted to exhibit these photographs where people could see you know, their selves, their communities as a way also of empowering them to potentially make their communities better. And it's a truly, I I think, exciting way to look at New York because what it does is it invites you to walk the streets with them. What were those streets like in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s? It's hard. We don't, you know, We don't remember. And now we can walk the streets and see what they saw. Oh, yeah, there are people sitting there, people hanging out, people waiting, people talking, right? I mean, all these things, the the ordinary textures of uh, the city. All of that sounds so nice right now. <laughs> so, as oh, wouldn't it we be We aren't nice? able I to agree. sit outside and just people watch right now. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So do you anticipate that New York will continue to be an important city for American Jews? Yes. Why is that? Because it's still the largest city in the United States, right? And uh, as the largest city in the United States, it's still the center of culture. It's now, you know, it was then the center of finance. Jews weren't in finance until after World War II, you know. It's, it has importance uh, for the United States itself. So, uh, of course, it's going to remain important for, uh, for Jews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're also the editor-in-chief of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. How do you see New York fitting into the larger story of Jewish civilization? Well, I think one of the things that is important in the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization is its expansive view. It includes secular Jews as well as religious Jews. It includes women as well as men. It, right, it's got a very broad understanding. And that fits in with what New York is about also. It's about forms of creativity that are diverse and uh, inclusive. And so the, although there's no specific sort of section on New York, so to speak, in the, in the Posen Library, there are some wonderful 
pieces of, of poetry and, uh, you know, some selections of stories. There's, you know, there's an excerpt from Grace Paley, a short story of hers. There's a, a, a wonderful poem by a guy writing about going to see his parents in an old age home in Brooklyn by Coney Island, right? And, it, you know, it's just those things that have the, the texture of, of New York. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything else I haven't asked you about yet that you'd like to share or talk about, either with New York or the what the Posen Library is doing? Well, the Posen Library, I should tell you, you can gain access to for free. That's really important. If you go to the com, no, posenlibrary.com, and you, you can register and you have available thousands of selections, visual material. It includes uh, most of the modern era, starting from 1750. And in another month, it will include biblical stuff as well, which I think is very important. So I think the one other thing, I was looking at the book again, that I would uh, draw your attention to is the frontispiece that is there. It's a photograph by William Klein uh, called May Day Parade Watchers from 1954. And I often show it to my students and I ask them to identify the ethnicities of the people in it, which is a challenge uh, because, you know, what he says is he calls it a pseudo poster of the American dream, Italian cop, integrated Hispanic, Yiddish mama, African-American lady, plus beret, the melting pot. It would be interesting to see a similar photo taken now, right? When we have a Macy's Day parade that, you know, people could actually get out on the street and watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a great photo. I really appreciate it's it. It's a great photo. It. Yeah, 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 and it it encapsulates, you know, Jewish New York. I mean, Klein was himself a, a New Yorker. He grew up uh, in Harlem. Yeah, great. So, and where yes. can folks learn more about your work if they're interested in learning more? Oh, I actually have a website that the University of Michigan hosted. I'm not going to remember what the URL is. I'll keep it in the show notes. We'll put a, a link to it. Put it in the show notes because yeah. it's nice. I have, I, there are so, a couple of clips of me talking about some things, you know, video clips. It's a list of all my scholarship and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And Jewish New York is available in paperback now, wherever yeah. books are sold. Highly recommend checking it out. So this was wonderful. Thank you so much for spending the time, Deborah. Well, I thought it was great too. And I I really enjoyed talking about it. As you can see, I I I love I love the city. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with intro music by Ketza and outgoing music by the one and only George Gershwin. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing with a friend or by adding a review in Apple Podcasts. That really does help others find us. You can follow me and say hello on Twitter or Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks. And to hear more episodes or learn about the people and media we mentioned, visit our website, onwandering.co. That's onwandering.co. Stay safe and well, and see you next time.